Uh, today's scripture reading will be 1 of Samuel chapter 25, verses 1 to 42. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strapped on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 men remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were, all a, they were a wall to us both by night and by day. Uh, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five shears of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he was returned me evil, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also. If by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, 
as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this man uh, now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, remember, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be, the, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, you has res- who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left in Nabal so much as one male." Then David received from her hand that what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like a feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning... When the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you and to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Thanks, Daniel. Good morning, everyone. We are, as we said, in the middle of a series looking at relationships, specifically through the lens of different relationships in King David's life. And up till this point in the series, we've taken individual relationships that have spanned long periods of time in his life and sort of traced them and seen how they developed and growed and got stronger or how they fell apart and what contributed to that. But today, and a few times in the next few weeks, rather than looking at the long-term span of a relationship, we're going to look at some snapshots from individual moments or scenes within relationships. Uh, I think we can often have a tendency in our world to feel like the day-to-day interactions of life aren't that big of a deal. But actually, the day-to-day interactions of life are what build 
a relationship over the long term. You never know when a seemingly insignificant moment can turn into a big, important moment that is a defining moment in the relationship. And so we're going to look at some specific scenes from relationships in David's life and and see the relationship dynamics at work in those scenes and see what we can learn from them. And today we're looking at this scene where David meets and marries his third wife, Abigail. And she gets mentioned a couple times more in David's story, just in passing, but this scene is really the only one where we get to know her as a person, where we get to see her interacting with others and, and learn about what she's like as a person. And what we're going to see today is that wisdom in relationships allows us to live in a way that honors God. Wisdom in relationships allows us to live in a way that honors God. And we're just going to look at the story and then talk about some of the characters, Nabal, David, Abigail, and then David part two. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that you have spoken to us through it, that you have showed us your truth about who you are, about how we can relate to you, about how you call us to live. And God, we pray that as we look at your word today, that you would be speaking to us, that you would be working in us through your Holy Spirit to turn us into the people that you want us to be, that we would be wise in our relationships and honor you in the way that we interact with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, just a recap of the story. At this point in his life, David is on the run from King Saul. King Saul wants David dead, even though David is, has done nothing wrong. Saul wants him dead. And so David has run to the wilderness. He's collected an army of 600 men who have just sort of randomly come to him over the years. And he has heard that this man named Nabal is shearing his sheep. And this sheep shearing, it would have been a time of celebration. You spend all year looking after your sheep, and this is when you're finally realizing the profits of your work. You're collecting the wool so that you can either make stuff from it to sell or you can sell it directly. You're getting together with all your employees to shear the sheep, but also it's a huge party because this is the time where you're recognizing like we've made lots of money this year. It's been a great year. We want to celebrate together, show you that we appreciate the hard work you've done. And David hears that this is going on and he sends some of his men to Nabal to ask for gifts from him. And he talks about how they guarded and protected Nabal's men in the wilderness. Now, I don't know about you. This might sound to you like a, a gangster asking for protection money. It, it seems like that's not quite what was going on here. See, Nabal had a lot of sheep, a lot of wealth. And in the wilderness in those days, there would be like bands of raiders that would come around and just slaughter whoever's watching over some sheep and take the sheep and run off with them. There were wild animals that could sneak in in the night and attack one or two of your sheep, kill them. With this many sheep, it would be easy for some of them to wander off. It was to be expected that if you sent this many sheep out into the wilderness, they probably weren't all going to come back alive. And what David and his men did is they basically acted as a wall. They kept any raiders from coming in and taking the sheep. They kept wild animals from getting the sheep. If sheep started to wander off, they would return them. They did amazing things to help Nabal and his men and to make sure that his profits were bigger this year than they would have been otherwise. 
And we see later in the story that Nabal's men were like, this was really, really beneficial for us. Like it actually sounds like Nabal and his men, or not Nabal himself, but his men followed David's men around for a while because they realized this is a really beneficial setup. And David, after offering all of this help, he wants something in return. He's like, you know, your, your profits are this much bigger this year because we helped you. Just give us a little bit, please. You've got 600 people trying to feed them in the wilderness. Not the easiest thing to do. So he sends these men. They arrive with a message from David and it starts with a blessing. He says, I hope that you have well-being. I hope your home has well-being. I hope everything connected to you has well-being. And hey, you remember that we helped you. If you can help us in return, that would be great. And rather than say, you know what, David, I'm so thankful for your help. Here's a gift. Nabal insults David and tells him to get lost. He's like, David, who's David? He's a nobody. He's a troublemaker. I don't want him around here. Go away. Don't bother me. He, he not only refuses to provide payment for the services that David and his men offered, but he insults David after David sent these kind words of blessing to him. And so when David hears about Nabal's response, he is furious. He is furious enough to murder. Not only to murder Nabal himself, but every single man in his household. So all of his male employees, any male servants that he has, they are all going to die because of this insult that Nabal just sent to David. And David, his, his men, his 600 person army, they are so loyal that they hear David say like, it's time to go to war. And they're like, yes, sir, let's go. They all strap on their swords. They're ready to go wipe out this guy's house entirely. But back at Nabal's house, one of the servants realizes trouble is coming and runs to Nabal's wife, Abigail. He tells her what happened. He tells her about the messengers. He tells her how Nabal responded. And he warns her that we are all in danger. And then he says, you know what to do about this. And she does. She rushes into action. Four times in this story, we see anytime Abigail does something, she's rushing, she's hurrying, she's doing it as fast as she can. She's not wasting time. She realizes we're in trouble. There's no time to lose. So I got to fix it. She doesn't go to her husband and complain like, how could you do this? Don't you understand what a horrible mistake you've made? No. She just sees what needs to be done and she does it. She prepares lots of food as a gift. She sends it ahead of her. And then she gets on her donkey to go and meet with David personally. And when she gets to David, she bows down on the ground before him. She shows him the humility and respect that her husband refused to show. She takes all the blame for her husband's action. She urges David to not kill Nabal, to, to turn away from this path of violence. She gives him this gift. She speaks words of blessing to David and she saves the day. David realizes that God has sent Abigail to keep him from sinning by taking revenge on Nabal. And David says that her household will be saved because of what she's done. And then in sort of an epilogue to the story, Abigail goes home. She sees Nabal is having a huge feast. He's drunk. So she says nothing until the next morning, but the next morning she tells him what she's done. And it says that his heart dies within him. Most commentators think he probably had some sort of a stroke and went into a coma. And then he stays in that state for 10 days until God strikes him dead. 
David hears that Nabal is dead. He's like, hey, that, that widow of his, she's a great girl. I could use someone like that in my collection of wives. So he sends for her and marries her. She becomes wife number three. And that's the story that we just read. And so we're going to look at these three key characters from this scene, Nabal, David, and Abigail. And we're going to see what each of them has to teach us about proper approaches to relationships. And first we're going to look at Nabal. Now, the first thing we learn about Nabal, before we even learn his name, is that he is very rich. It's an important thing to him about his identity. And it's only after we learn that he's very rich that we learn that his name is Nabal. And this was almost certainly a nickname given to him by the people around him, not the name that his mom gave him when he was born. Now, why do I say that? Because the name Nabal literally means fool. If you're a mom, you have to really hate your newborn baby to give them that name. But if you work with someone day after day after day and you see the way that they interact with other people, you could very easily start calling him this. And it could stick once everyone realizes that it is a fitting name for this person. And the next details we learn about Nabal show us that this name, it's fitting, that he is harsh and badly behaved. So he's rich and powerful, but he is an idiot. And that is a dangerous combination. There's a lot for us to learn about Nabal. We see at the beginning of the story that Nabal is full of himself. He thinks that he is the center of the world. Like, did you notice David sends these young men and they give this blessing to Nabal. They ask for him to give something to them. And then in verse 11, this is Nabal's response. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Do you notice how many times the words I and my showed up in that verse? Seven. In the original Hebrew, it's actually eight. He, everything is about him and and the world revolves around himself. Multiple different people who are close to him comment throughout the story on the fact that no one can say anything to him. He thinks he already knows everything. If anyone tries to correct him or disagree with him, they must be wrong. And since they know that he's not going to listen when they have stuff to say, they just give up. They stop talking to him. They stop trying to convince him that other options could be better. So not only is he an idiot, not only does he make these destructive choices that are harmful to himself and everyone around him, he never actually gets to see or hear about how harmful the things he's doing are because no one can tell him. And we have one more glimpse near the end of the story of just how highly he thinks of himself. It says when Abigail gets back from bringing these supplies to David, Nabal is throwing a party like the feast of a king. In his eyes, he may as well be the king. He's got all the power. He's got all the authority. His word is the law. No one can contradict him. No one can stand against him. Don't mess with Nabal. That's the personality of this man, Nabal. Because he is so great, he doesn't need to listen to anyone else. And before you think, what an idiot, how could anyone be this way? Remember, he had really good reasons for thinking so highly of himself, right? He is incredibly wealthy. 
He's apparently made several good business deals throughout the years. And every time another deal goes his way and brings in more and more wealth, more profit, it just reinforces the fact that I really do know everything. Anyone who disagrees with me is wrong. The world really does and should revolve around me. And I hope we don't have any enables in this room. But I've been around Hong Kong long enough to know that there are a lot of them in this city. <laughs> that there are plenty of people in Hong Kong who are really good at making money. And because they're so good at making money, they think the world should revolve around them. I have a little secret for you though. There are also plenty of people in Hong Kong who are not good at all at making money, but still think the world revolves around them. Right? You don't have to be rich to be enable. If you are enable, you need to learn from him because you are on a path to harm and destruction. And if you're not enable, you still need to learn from him because you're living in Hong Kong and you're going to come into contact with plenty of navels throughout your life. So here's the secret about navel. Despite everything great he thinks about himself, he is not the hero at the end of the story. He's actually the butt of everyone's jokes. He puts his family and his business on the verge of total destruction because of his foolish behavior. He's totally oblivious to the harm he's causing because he pushes away or scares off anyone who could try and tell him the truth. The only people left around him close to him are the ones who are smart enough to just hold their tongues when he's there. If you think the world revolves around you, if you refuse to listen to advice from other people under your authority, if you treat people disrespectfully just because you can and you know no one's going to be able to stop you, it has real consequences for you and the people around you. It will put you on a path to ruin, either because people will seek to take revenge against you or because God himself will send justice against you. And unless God protects them, it will ruin the people around you as well. I mean, how many businesses have crashed and failed and tons of employees have lost jobs because the boss was an idiot? It happens all the time in our world. How many families have gone bankrupt and the kids and the spouse are left to suffer the consequences because one person in the marriage made lots of bad financial decisions? Thinking you're the center of the universe is a path to ruin and destruction, not just for yourself, but for the people around you. So let me ask you, who has permission to speak hard truth to you without you getting defensive or pushing them away? Does anyone have that permission to speak that hard truth to you? When was the last time you admitted you were wrong? Not making excuses, just saying, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Would the people closest to you describe you as approachable? Or are you like Nabal, someone who pushes everyone away around you? If you're not willing to listen to people when they disagree with you, if you're not approachable, if you're defensive, there's a danger that you are enable, even if your bank account has far less money in it than his did. And there's an important thing that we need to learn from Nabal. And that is that you and I are not the center of the universe. 
I know our world tells us, put ourselves first, follow your heart, be true to yourself. Even if everyone else thinks you're crazy and tells you this is a terrible decision, just do what feels right to you. But the reality is that a regular established pattern of ignoring wise counsel from people who care about you, it's a path to destruction. And no matter how successful you are, all the money in the world can't save you from God's judgment. Even if you make it perfectly through your life on earth, never have anything go wrong. If you're ignoring wise counsel, if you're ignoring God's ways, if you're living like you're the center of the universe, all the money in the world cannot save you from God's judgment. It will end poorly for you, whether you call yourself a Christian or not. Living in this way, like we are the center of the universe, it's outside of God's design for the good life. It's living in a way that kills relationships and it does not end well. Like I said, I hope there are no navels here, but if there are, this passage has huge things to teach you about how to approach relationships and especially what not to do in them. But Nabal's not the only character in this story. Next we see David. See, David hears about Nabal's insult and what does he do? He tells all his followers, get your swords, we're going to battle. It's not really gonna be a battle, it's just gonna be more of a slaughter because Nabal's not gonna be able to defend himself. He's ready to kill Nabal and all the men in his house. And I'm guessing that like David, all of us at some point or another in our lives have been insulted. And I think David's first instinct when he's insulted, it's probably the first instinct many of us have when we're insulted, that I must get even. I must make things right. But like with David, when we feel that urge to get even and make things right, we never really want to make it even, do we? We want to go just a little further than they did so that at the end of the day, we're ahead. We're on top. We want to one-up them. And that's why an insult leads to a response of, I'm going to wipe out his entire household, right? I mean, think about it. If you have a friend, say named Daniel, and he says something to your friend, Manny, that's insulting to you, and word gets back to you about Daniel saying something insulting, what do you want to do? Well, you want to insult Daniel back, right? But you don't want to insult him at the same level as he insulted you. You want to find something even more insulting that you can say about him. And you don't want to just say it to one friend. You want to post it on social media so the whole world can hear your insult of Daniel and know what a terrible, horrible person that Daniel is. We try and one-up them so that they hurt worse than we do and we can come out ahead. And we'll see as this story goes on, that is not the proper response to these situations. Yes, Nabal did something genuinely wrong. Yes, Nabal deserved justice, but David is not the one who is meant to bring him that justice. And even if he was, what he is about to do is not justice. It's a further injustice that will only make the situation worse. You insult me, I destroy your family. David, he's a man after God's own heart. He is a hero of the faith. And he's just so blinded by his anger that he loses sight of this. For him to realize this is not the right response, it actually requires someone else to come into the scene in a surprising way and show him there's a better way of doing this. I had an Old Testament professor in seminary. He said, if you need to summarize the entire story of the Old Testament in one sentence, 
The entire story of the Old Testament can be summarized in this sentence. The Lord fights the battles for his people. It's the entire story of the Old Testament. The Lord fights the battles for his people. And David right here, he's forgotten that this is true. He's ready to fight his own battles. He's ready to wipe out Nabal. He's ready to make make things right. And he needs to remember the Lord fights the battles for his people. And that's why it's such good news that Abigail is part of this story too. So let's look at her. See, the first thing we learn about Abigail is that she is discerning. It means she has the ability to understand different situations in life and act properly in light of them. And wow, do we see her doing this in this passage. David, he hears that Nabal has insulted him. He's on his way to wipe out Nabal's entire family. And the servants run to Abigail to tell her what's just happened. And Abigail responds with wisdom. She responds with skill. She is an incredible woman. But remember, her husband is an idiot who has just put their entire household in imminent danger of slaughter. Based on the comments she makes, this isn't the first time that he's done things that are horrible and harmful for the family. Apparently, he has a habit of doing really dumb and horrible stuff that hurts the people around him. Over the years, I have spoken to a number of women who are married to husbands who in some way or other resemble Nabal. And I think there are a number of responses. If that's you, don't look at your husband right now and make faces at him. (laughs) Don't embarrass him. (laughs) But I think there are a number of standard responses that it's easy to take when you're trapped in a difficult marriage like that. One is just stop trying. You know, my husband, he's a horrible man. He's dead set on destroying the family, everything we worked for. It's too exhausting to try and stop him. So I'm just going to do my own thing and stop worrying about him. I'm here, but I'm emotionally checked out from the marriage. I think option two is just leave. You know, if I stay with him, it's going to lead to trouble. I just have to get out for my own protection. Three is get super depressed. Like I've tried and tried to make things better. Nothing works. Eventually everything in the marriage feels hopeless and you just don't want to get out of bed anymore. I think those are probably the most common responses to being married to enable. But it is super, super rare in our world, probably was even more rare in the ancient world to see someone respond to a husband like Nabal in a way like Abigail does. She doesn't leave him. She doesn't give up hope for the family and just get super depressed. She doesn't go just emotionally check out of the marriage. She dives in and she takes charge of the things that she is able to control. Notice that she's built up a really strong relationship with the servants. They know that Nabal's not going to listen to common sense, but if stuff needs to get done in this house, bring it to Abigail. It will get done. We will be okay because Abigail is here. So they come to her for help when they need it. She takes initiative to do things that will help the family, even if her husband doesn't approve of them. She, behind her husband's back, prepares tons of food to send to David and his men in order to mend the relationship with them. Then she herself goes and meets with her husband's enemy to negotiate peace behind her husband's back. Right? This is a desperate move. It would have been a scandalous thing to do in that world, but she does it to save her family. And she demonstrates amazing diplomatic skill. You notice the first thing she does when she gets to David. 
She bows down on her face before him. She realizes my husband should have honored him. He didn't. I need to start by showing him the honor that he deserves as the future king of our nation. And then when she starts to speak in line with her being such a unique woman, her speech right here is actually the longest speech of any woman in the entire Old Testament. And the first thing she does is to ask for all the guilt for her husband's actions to be placed on her. Did you notice that? It's a weird thing to do, right? Like, why would she do that? She shouldn't be blamed for what he did. She had no part in his actions. As soon as she found out what he had done, she went and did everything in her power to make it right. It's not her fault. But here's the really important detail of the situation. As long as the guilt for the action falls on Nabal, he's never going to take responsibility for it. He's never going to apologize for it. He's never going to ask forgiveness for it. The situation will never be resolved. By taking the blame on herself, she's making it possible for her to apologize and receive forgiveness on behalf of the family. It's a way of diffusing the situation and bringing peace to what is a horrible situation. In many ways, she's acting like Jesus right here. She's taking the blame and the consequences for something she didn't do so that the people who did it can go free from the consequences they deserve. That's exactly what Jesus does on the cross. And just as Jesus' sacrifice on the cross brings life to others, her sacrifice right here brings life to others. Next, she assures David that that God has sent her to him in order to prevent David from taking matters into his own hands, right? David was a national hero. People knew about him. They knew about his faith. She knows that he seeks to honor God and live for him. And she tells him, you know, the most honoring thing you can do for God right now is not kill my family. Stop your path of vengeance. She appeals to his love for God as a way of protecting her family. And then she gives him the gift the food that she brought. It's a lot of food. It's not going to go very far among 600 soldiers, but it's a token of appreciation to show we really do appreciate what you did for our family and the way you helped us. And then she reminds David, God will fight for you. God will protect you. God will punish your enemies. And because of that, you don't need to take matters into your own hands. You can wait for God to save you. And Abigail's actions save the day. She is an amazing, amazing woman. I want to say to you, if you are here today and you are married to a Nabal, first, I'm sorry. Like whether you're a man or a woman, being stuck in a marriage like that is a hard relationship to be a part of. I encourage you, if you haven't done this yet, find someone in the church that you trust that you can talk to about it and just share so that you're not struggling alone. If there's anything we as a church family can do to help and support you in your marriage, come talk to us. We would love to hear about how we can help you in that tough situation. But also I want to encourage you, if that's you, to learn from Abigail. Notice she doesn't check out of the relationship. She doesn't leave. She doesn't give up hope of things ever getting better. She realizes my spouse's actions have consequences for everyone in the household and our business, for our family members, for our servants, for our employees. It doesn't sound like they had any kids yet at this point, but if they had kids, they would have been impacted by it too. And so she acts in ways 
that will bring blessings to those people. And that is not an easy thing to do when it feels like every step of the way your spouse is just trying to stop you. It's far easier to complain, to make excuses about why I can't do anything. But there's a reality that can empower us, even in those difficult circumstances, to love and serve our families in this way. And that is experiencing God's love for us. You know, I mentioned that when Abigail comes and takes the guilt for her husband's action, she is a picture of Jesus. None of us will ever reach the point where we are willing to make that type of sacrifice for our spouse or for our family until we understand that God did it for us first. Ultimately, the gospel is the only thing that can give us the strength to respond properly to the navels in our lives. It gives us the confidence that God is going to fight our battles for us, so we don't need to take matters into our own hands. It gives us the confidence to stand up and do the right thing, even if it might make our spouse mad. It gives us the humility to not always need to fight for our rights, which actually allows us to seek the best outcome in situations, not just the outcome we want. And it gives us the hope that what we do still matters. God can still use us. Even if from a human perspective, things seem hopeless, there is always hope. If you're stuck in a difficult marriage, it's hard, but there's always hope. It is not hopeless. God can use you to powerfully bless your family and the people around you. And Abigail does this as she meets with David, and then it's David's turn to respond. So let's look at David part two. Did you notice how David responds to Abigail? He praises God. He recognizes the wisdom in what she's saying. He turns back from his plan to kill Nabal's household. David, he is often impulsive, like right here, like you insulted me, I'm gonna kill you. But unlike Nabal, he's almost always willing to listen to people who tell him he's wrong. And that's one of the biggest reasons that leads to a different result in David's life than in Nabal's life. And again, what is it about David that gives him the strength and the courage to stand down and let go of this fight? It's his faith that God is in power and in control and will protect him. One of the things that Abigail tells David is that she reminds him, one day you're going to be king. Your family will rule this nation for generations. And if you want to be a king who honors God, you can't start out by being someone who just goes after revenge. There's a reality at work for David right here that that can help us learn to forgive others and let God fight our battles for us. And it's this, when you know the promises of God, when you know the glory that awaits you in the future, it equips you to live properly today. When you know the promises of God and the glory that awaits you in the future, it equips you to live properly today. For David, he had this promise of future glory, him being king over the nation, but he's not on the throne yet. And so today he needs to live by faith, to trust in God, that God will keep his promises and that that will come true. And having this faith lets him trust God, not just that one day I will be on the throne, but that today every obstacle in the way of that, if he's going to get me on the throne, he's going to deal with those obstacles too. And so I don't need to take matters into my own hand because David had faith in God's future promises. It allowed him to live properly today. And God has future promises for you and me as well. 
He promises us that when we trust in him, we have eternity in his presence, eternity of blessing. The price of admission already paid in full, it is ours. And if we can trust God to get us to that finish line of glory where we are with him forever, then like David, we can trust him to deal with all the obstacles that get in our way today. We don't have to take matters into our own hands. We can forgive, we can let go of grudges, we can stand down because God's faithfulness will bring us safely to the finish line and sustain us every step of the way. So David forgives, Abigail goes home. The next day she tells her husband what happened and he goes into shock and he dies within two weeks and David sends for her asking her to marry him. And as we've already pointed out, she has some incredible traits of a great wife. She is incredibly smart. She is diplomatic. She's capable of getting stuff done. She takes initiative even in tough circumstances. She goes out of her way to make life better for her family, even if it risks her husband's anger. She is humble. She is beautiful. She has a confidence that comes from a strong relationship with God. Single guys, if you ever meet a girl like that, marry her. Right? Like, don't take your time and risk someone else getting in there and getting her first. If you meet someone like that, marry her. Married guys, if you meet someone like that and it's not your spouse, don't marry her. And David makes that mistake right here. He sends for her and asks her to marry him. And again, probably not the wisest decision he's ever made because he's already married. As we discussed last week, polygamy, it was common in that world, especially for kings. But every time it shows up in the Bible, it leads to harm, it leads to hurt, it leads to pain. And that's gonna happen in David's story, but that's another story for another day. So for today, we see that Nabal, Abigail, and David each have important lessons to teach us about the proper and wrong approaches in relationships. From Nabal, we learn that foolishness and pride lead to destruction. But from David and Abigail, we learn that wisdom in relationships allows us to live in a way that honors God. It gives us the power to keep seeking good in situations that would otherwise seem hopeless. It gives us humility to lay down our need for revenge. It brings us peace in the midst of conflicts. It allows us to be a blessing and makes a good life possible. But that wisdom is only possible for us as we trust in God's promises and rely on the power of the gospel and the hope of the gospel each day in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, this picture in your word of this, this conflict. And even though it was a tough situation, we thank you for working for good in it, for bringing peace at the end of it, and for teaching us through it. I pray that we would be people this week who have wisdom in our relationships, who don't live as if the world revolves around us, but who seek to be a blessing to the people around us. And in Jesus' name, amen.